Tonight's message will be sermon number 15 in the series uh, involving the subject of infant salvation. And the title of the message tonight is that of the after-death probationary theory. In our studies upon this subject thus far, we traveled a great deal down the road toward the completion of our goal. In our journey, we've encountered and exposed the errors and insufficiencies of several theories, each of which claim to answer the question as to what happens to an infant which dies in its infancy. The theories which we've already covered, which are found in various segments of the Christian Church, have been the sinless theory, the belief that infants are born innocent without sin, Secondly, the incapable theory, which holds that infants are incapable of entering into a probationary testing period. And then the third theory was the character of the love of God theory, based that since God is a universal God of love, therefore there could be no such thing as the destruction of an infant. Then, fourthly, we examined the children of God theory, which holds that all infants are born already members of the children or the family of God. And then the fifth theory was that of the universal atonement theory, which states that upon the birth of the infant, the atonement is applied so as to pardon the infant of its sin, debt, but the atonement does nothing to change the infant's nature. And we saw the inadequacy of that. You can't take a baby to heaven that has a sinful nature. Something has to be done with that nature. And then the sixth theory, the advocates of that theory feel they have the answer, and that is baptismal regeneration, the view which is taught by the Church of Rome, that when the infant is baptized, grace pardons its sin and also sanctifies and changes its nature so that the Roman Catholic Church feels that it has the position that the infant must be baptized and then the grace of God comes in contact with it. But obviously, as the teaching of Rome readily acknowledges, all babies who die unbaptized then are not permitted to enter into the realm of heaven and must die and perish. So all of these views, we believe, are false, and have come short of answering the question of what happens to an infant which dies in its state of infancy. Tonight we'll examine the seventh major view of infant salvation, which is referred to as the after-death probationary theory. And we'll take the normal approach to the subject as usual by examining the major premise of the theory and its affirmations, and then we'll proceed to show the fallacies of the theory in the form of both rational and biblical objections. Now, what is the advocates of the view of this theory actually hold? What's the major premise which they set forth? And listen carefully as we state it from their viewpoint. Inasmuch as each person must define and decide his own destiny, by the free choice and consent of his own will, and seeing as how all infants who die in infancy are unable to define their destiny in a relationship to Christ and his gospel, there must of necessity 
be an after-death probationary period for the infant to grow into such a state of adult maturity that it can determine its own destiny by its own free will and consent. Now, this is the position which the advocates of this view press. Now, you must understand who these advocates are. These are the advocates who are known as the Arminian in that they confess that the infant is born with original sin. They confess that there is a universal atonement applied to the infant in its birth that pardons it of its sin, but it does nothing to its nature. So obviously there is no provision for the child to go to heaven under the view of a universal atonement if that atonement doesn't sanctify its nature. But the Arminian maintains that the grace of God cannot sanctify a person's human nature until the individual first gives God its consent to do so. So then you see then why they are naturally pressed into this idea that since the infant cannot give its consent to be sanctified, then it must be allowed to grow up in a state after it dies so that it can reach maturity and therein give its consent. Now, there are two basic beliefs which lead to this premise. We've touched upon them, I'll restate them. The advocates of this view of after-death probation affirm and believe in the biblical teaching of original sin, wherein the infant inherits a sinful nature from birth. That is, they readily teach that the Bible sets forth that an infant is not born innocent, but it is born with a nature inherited from its parents which went back to the fall of Adam, so that the child is born with a nature which is corrupt, depraved, and sinful, and will, upon growing to a responsible age, begin to manifest the seeds of that sinful nature. Now, the advocates also then believe that since the baby has a sinful nature, there must be a moral change come about in that baby's nature before it can be taken to heaven. And that is logical and necessary, because if you take an infant unregenerated, unsanctified, transpose it into the family of God in heaven. If it is taken in an unchanged state, its character then would begin to develop and grow into the point where it would manifest sin uh, in heaven itself. And we cannot have sin breaking out in heaven again. So the advocates understand that inasmuch as the infant is born with a sinful nature, that nature must be changed before it can enter heaven. But then they insist upon the belief that God cannot be allowed to influence a change in the infant's nature without prior consent being given by the infant. Now, do you see the reasoning process there? Hmm? Yes or no? You see that? That is, if the infant has a sinful nature, 
The advocates of this view, which hold to the doctrine of free will, say that God cannot influence a change in any person's nature until the person's will first gives its consent to do so. Well, this puts us in a problem, for they persistently emphasize the need of regeneration. But they assert that no human being can be acted upon by God's grace without the consent and cooperation of the human will. So what's the baby going to do? The baby can't give its consent, and God can't regenerate it, and it has a sinful nature. What are you going to do with such a person as this? If a person confesses that an infant is born with a sinful nature, then you have three alternatives with which to deal with. Now, I present to you as my hearers here tonight, do you believe the Bible to teach that all men are born in trespasses and sins? You believe the Scripture affirms that? and that Jesus Christ was the only human being who ever came into this world without sin because he was virgin-born. And every other member of the race inherited a nature which was sinful from their father, who was Adam. So then every baby is born into the world with a sinful nature. Then if you confess that and don't deny it, there are only three alternatives which you have in which to answer as to what to do with an infant which dies in infancy. Now, only three. Now, I'm going to give them to you, and you see which one you want to feel is the most logical and the most biblical and would give the most glory to God. The first alternative is this. The infant must then be taken into heaven with its nature unpurged and unchanged. Is that what we shall do with it? Shall we take it and transport it to heaven with its nature still sinful, uncleansed, and unchanged? That's one alternative. The second alternative is that the infant must have its nature changed without its prior consent by the sovereign power of God's grace. Now, that's the second alternative. That is, since the infant cannot act on its own will, then the infant's nature must be changed by a powerful operation of a creator, changing its nature and sanctifying it and cleansing it without the infant's consent. Now, that's the second alternative. The third alternative is that which the advocates of our theory this evening have proposed. And that is, the infant must be allowed to grow into maturity in an intermediate state between death and the judgment, and then be allowed to settle its own destiny by the consent of its own free will. Now, which of those three views are you going to choose? Those are the only three options that you have in dealing with an infant which dies in infancy. If you confess that it is born with original sin and has a nature which is sinful. You can either let it go to heaven with a sinful nature, in which case 
Corruption is going to break out in heaven. You can regenerate it without its consent by the powerful work of God's grace so as to change its nature and take it to heaven. Or you can let the infant die and then grow into an adult in some disembodied state between death and the judgment, and there the individual will decide its own destiny by the consent of its own will, giving God the authority or the freedom to change its nature. Now, what would you feel would be the most biblical, and which do you feel would give the most glory unto God? I want to read to you a statement from an advocate of this position who is an Arminian, that is, he belongs to the Wesleyan Methodist branch of the Christian denomination, and here is his conclusions that he had to reach in order to come up with this view of an after-death probation. Listen carefully, as it's somewhat involved, I'll try to read it in a matter that's understandable, and then elaborate a little bit upon it. Dr. Curtis, professor of systematic theology in Drew Theological Seminary, long since deceased. He says, my own conclusions as to infant salvation are as follows. First, it is a fact of Christian consciousness that we all now believe that those children are saved who die before they reach personal responsibility. Our discussion, therefore, is not for the purpose of getting a belief, but merely for consistency, merely to harmonize with the fundamental principles of our theology a belief which we already have. That is, he's saying in order to be consistent with Arminian theology, then we want to explain what happens to an infant which dies according to our principles of theology, which are Arminian, he states. He says, second, these children are persons. We cannot for a moment believe the teaching, however practically couched, that these children snatched from our homes are nondescripts, that more than thing but less than a person. That is, he attributes personality to them. There can be no such nondescript in the intermediate state all these children come to full personal experience just as surely as our children do in this life. That is, after they die, they grow into a state of maturity. Third, these children are moral persons. Not only do they come to self-consciousness with all the motives originally intrinsic to created personality, but also they feel the urgency of these motives as persons under moral demand. Fourth, under moral demand and with this contrariety of motives, these children apprehend and freely accept their Savior, and in companionship with him they achieve in the intermediate state, that is, between death and the judgment, the full equivalent of a perfect Christian experience. Thus they are saved under a personal and moral test. Now, fifth, the reason these children are treated in this special manner, and I'll be coming back to that statement in just a moment, 
and granted an essential, there, see, there, and the reason for their being taken out of this life and granted an essential test in place of a formal test is, I conjecture, that they are exceptional persons, we'll come back to that, who have no need of a prolonged probation to fix their moral destiny, and their death is so entangled with the probation or with the development of other persons as to be of more providential worth than its, than its continued life in this world. That is, they die not to get an advantage but to give service. And yet they are peculiarly honored to be selected by our Lord. Now note that. This is a man who frowns upon the doctrine of election. And then he comes back and says, to be selected by our Lord to be taken at once into this profound life and get their entire Christian salvation, so to speak, directly from him, should be regarded as a glory beyond our largest estimate in speech. And we'll come back and examine that and see what he did to his own system of theology and coming in from the back door side. But in essence, he then confers that the child dies, and then in this intermediate state, it determines its destiny there by a special test given to it by God. Now, I want to give some objections to this view. First of all, this view is a complete surrender of the whole question of infant salvation. Now, why do you say that, Pastor? Because the question which we have been discussing for numerous weeks, this is 15 messages now, is not how can an adult, either embodied or disembodied, be saved, but the question is how can an infant be saved in this life? That's the question. And this view then discards and surrenders the whole question because it has the child grow up into an adult before its destiny is determined. Therefore, it in essence completely surrenders any solution as to what happens to an infant who dies in infancy. It completely says, then, we have no answer to what happens to an infant which dies in infancy. We merely let the infant grow into an adult between death and the judgment, and thereby it determines its destiny as an adult. Do you see? It has surrendered the whole question. It, in essence, has said we cannot answer what happens to a baby who dies in infancy. Now, beloved, if a universal atonement won't answer it, and baptism won't answer it, and after death won't answer it, then what answer are we going to have if God Almighty does not have the right and the glory and the power to take that little infant in his arms and redeem it by the blood of Christ and regenerate it by the Spirit of God so as to transport it into the presence of God. If God doesn't have the right to do that, then what are we going to do with this baby? 
And you see why the advocates are so pressed, they in essence say, the Bible has no answer. The only answer the Bible has for the salvation of any person is for an adult who can first give his consent as to where he desires to spend his destiny or his eternity. So the question again is not how can an adult be saved, but how can an infant be saved in this life? Now this view, while seeking to oppose the Calvinistic principle of God's unconditional election of some men unto salvation, actually teaches a view of divine election which is more offensive than any Calvinistic position that you'll ever read. Why will not this Methodist theologian consent to the unconditional regeneration of the child? We have read him or heard from him in previous messages in which he has stated that if you consent to God unconditionally saving one person, then you have committed the whole proposition to the Calvinistic principle, that God can save anybody and everybody that way if it so pleases him to do so. So this man says we must avoid that. In those three alternatives which we gave, this position would look at the first and say, it is impossible to allow the infant to go to heaven with an unchanged nature. Impossible. But then this position would say, it is inadmissible to allow God to unconditionally regenerate it, because therein we would have to give up our whole system of theology and turn it over to our Calvinistic brethren, for they have the principle then. So then he says the only way that we can solve it is in an after-death situation. In order to press this excessive streams to get an after-death, he is attempting to avoid having to deal with the principle of unconditional election of God, unconditional regeneration and unconditional redemption. But I want to now show you from his statements that he presents a far more offensive view of election than any statement that you'll ever read from a Calvinistic writer. To show that he does believe, or that he is setting forth an election, although he doesn't recognize it, I want to take you back to statements which he makes. He says, these children, that is, these who die in infancy and are allowed this probationary second chance, he says, these children are treated in this quote, special manner. Now, what do we as Calvinistic Christians hold that God does when he saves a sinner? He deals with that person in a special manner, in a way in which he doesn't deal with the others. All right? This man says, since it's God who controls death, he's the one which allowed the infant to die, then he lets this infant be dealt with in a special manner that he doesn't deal with other infants who are allowed to live and grow up as adults. He deals with this, these in a special way. Then next, he says, these are exceptional 
persons. What does the word exceptional mean? Well, out of the ordinary, sanctified, set apart. These are unusual persons. He says they are peculiarly honored. Hmm? Are you saved here this evening? Do you consider yourself a peculiar person? Someone to whom God has bestowed a special honor upon that he hasn't others? Now here this Armenian author who advocates free will, advocates free will, says these infants which die in infancy, they have a peculiar honor bestowed upon them. What is that but election? Then listen to this next term, to be selected by our Lord. Hmm? They were selected to die in infancy by our Lord. Well, that's distinguishing, that's discriminating. That's putting one apart from the one whom God allows to live. And then, just as we as Calvinistic believers glory in the grace of God and feel that it is the highest honor unto God to honor and glorify him in the salvation of a sinner, then he says that these infants should be regarded as a glory beyond our largest estimate in speech. That is, God gave them a glory which he did not give those that he allowed to live. Beloved, that's election. That's election. But it's an unjust type of election. At least our election's not unjust. Because we set forth that no one deserves salvation, do we not? That if anyone is saved, it is an act of God's unmerited favor. It is not something which God puts a person in a test, and then they determine whether they are going to sin or not. Whether they're going to save themselves or not. Salvation is a sovereign disposition of grace bestowed upon an individual's life. An individual who did not deserve life. So that if men got what they deserved, all would perish. But if God sees fit to spare and save a great number out of Adam's race and permit others to go their own way, then no one can rise up and charge God with being unjust. For if he had been just, all would have perished. But I want you to notice how this system of election is which God selects certain infants to be put in a probation outside of their body and some infants to be allowed to live in the body and go through a probationary testing. That is unjust. Now you say, Brother Jim, how is that the case? I don't quite understand it. Well, sin is not only in the soulish nature of man's mind, and his spiritual being, but where else is sin at? Hmm? Is it not in the flesh? Is it not in the body? 
Can we not sin in our heart and our mind, our attitude, and then fulfill that sin in the flesh? Did not Jesus say if a man could think in his heart upon a woman to lust after her, he is what? He is guilty of adultery, even though that he does not fulfill it in his physical body? Did he not teach that if a man hates his brother in his heart, he's guilty of murder, although he never plunges a knife into the physical body? We can sin in the body, in the physical realm, and we can sin in the moral or the mental attitude of the heart. Now follow me carefully. Which one has the greatest opportunity if salvation is by probationary testing, who has the best chance of passing the test? A man who only has a spiritual sin to deal with, or a man who has both spiritual and physical sins to deal with? If you were going to be put through to a test, would you rather to allow God to live in a sinful body or take you out of that body where you only had to deal with the sin in your spiritual realm, your heart? Hmm? I ask you, is it an equal fair test? If God selects some people of Adam's race to die before they ever sin in the body and then allow them a special, selective testing in a disembodied state? Beloved, I say that view is unjust and will not shut the mouths of men on the final day of judgment. You say, how is that, Brother Jim? Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, and here we have a statement that on that day of judgment, all men will acknowledge that God's judgments will be righteous. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be what? Stopped. And all the world may become guilty before who? Before God. When God judges the race of Adam, there will be no one that will be able to say, God, your judgments upon me and the destiny you assign to me is not fair. God's judgments will be righteous. But, beloved, this view, which we presented to you tonight, say, you allowed me to live in my body, and I became a whoremonger when you took my brother out of this body, and he never had to go through that exposure to that test. Unfair. Unfair. The alcoholic could say, you allowed me to live in this physical body and go through the temptation of alcohol, and therefore you took my twin brother and took his life in death where he didn't have to deal with the lust of the flesh. All of those objections can be thrown in the face of God on the final day of judgment if some infants are given a second period of probation out of their body 
when the rest of the infants are allowed to grow up in the body and not only have to deal with the temptations of the attitudes of the heart, but has to deal with the lust of the what? Of the flesh. So this is a form of election or selection no matter how you look at it. It is the man saying that God selected some to be given an exceptional test out of the body while he allowed others to live in the body and therefore their test would not be equal to the others. How many of you have ever made statements, though, in your own times in the past that somebody's baby died and... uh, uh, maybe it was someone in your family or a close friend, and you made the statement, well, God knew that if the little baby lived, it would grow up and not become a Christian. And therefore, God took its life before it, it grew up and reached maturity. Have you ever made a statement like that? I have. I have. But, beloved, if you recognize that, the same God then which knew that little baby was going to grow up and not become a Christian knew who all the babies were that were going to grow up and wasn't going to become a Christian. Why did he go ahead and let them be born then? Why didn't he take all the babies in death? Why did he just take some? See, you're still teaching selection. You're still teaching election. No matter how you may try to get away from it, there's going to have to be an election of God some way in the dealing with an infant, which dies in infancy. You can't escape it. Now, the third objection which we give to this view is that the Scriptures explicitly teach that there is no after-death probation for any human being, whether it be an infant or an adult. They're clear on this, and you cannot force it into the Scriptures. The first Scripture that we would look at is Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. Have your Bibles ready. Let's look at at several here. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. The scriptures clearly set forth that there is no after-death probation either for an infant or an adult. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, a second probationary period. Hmm? Is that right? Hebrews 9:27 It is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment no second probation after death taught in this passage of scripture The door of opportunity is closed by death This is what makes death so solemn in the scriptures If men could believe that all death was is a door which would allow them to move from one geographical location unto another and there continue their probationary state, then death would no longer have the great fear that it has for us in many senses. 
But when you read the Bible, death appears to be the final closing of that door wherein the character of that individual cannot be changed after death. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10 states, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where thou goest. Whatever you're going to do now, you better do it before the grave comes. Because when the grave comes, there'll be no more changing of character. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, a very familiar passage. You've heard it numerous times if you've been around the Lord's work very long. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your what? Your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. So that the understanding is that if one dies not being saved today, They are not to have the hope that there's going to be a second chance, another extended probation, the door left open for their eternal destiny to be decided. It is today. Today, even now, is the day of salvation. If you're here without the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been brought to see your need of him tonight, if you die outside of Christ, then confess to God even now, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God saves sinners, those who sense the need of a Savior. He delights to save sinners. But when that last message is proclaimed that you hear and death comes, there will be no more preaching of the gospel. No more overtures, come unto me, come unto me. Come now, today is the day of salvation. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 24, would you turn there? We have a statement from the lips of our Lord himself concerning one of his apostles, the traitor, who was known as Judas. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 24. Before I read the text, I make this proposition. If there was some after-death chance of still being accepted by God, then Judas still had that opportunity. But I want you to look at Jesus' statement regarding Judas. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Beloved, there's no hope left out for us to believe that somehow Jesus obtained some good and entered into eternal life after, or rather Judas entertained and entered into eternal life after his death. 
And Jesus would not have given us that statement. If there was still an open door of salvation after death for Judas, Jesus could not have said it would have been good for that man if he'd never been born. But he said those very words. It was not good for that man that he was born. Now, some of you ought to be doing some thinking then. Who born him? Hmm? God's the creator. There was some other purpose in the creation of Judas other than Judas's own good. For God foreknew what all the outcome of Judas was going to be before he ever allowed him to be conceived in the womb of his mother. And Jesus said, as far as for Judas's own good, it had been better if he had never been born. No second chance implied here. Go to the book of Revelation chapter 20. There we have a judgment scene of the great white throne of judgment. <clears throat> Let's see if there is any hope that is given to us in those verses of an after death extension of the day of salvation. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Uh, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Now, who were standing there? The dead. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to the works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And their destinies were assigned. No mention here of any group which was in some state of a second probationary period after death. Now, after this great white throne of judgment, go over to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11. Here is the final statement of Christ. He that is unjust will still have another chance. No. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. Beloved, hear me carefully tonight as death finds you. So eternity will seal your destiny. If death finds you unjust and unclean, you will remain unjust and unclean throughout eternity. If death finds you with a character which is righteous and holy, then death will pronounce that you shall have a righteous and holy character throughout all eternity. He that's unjust, sealed in that unjust character. He which is just, sealed in that just character. No indication in the Bible of any probationary state in an intermediate condition between death and the judgment for either an adult or an infant. Go to Luke chapter 16. Here we have the account of the rich man. And Lazarus, Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. 
You know the account of the rich man and Lazarus, of how both lived in this life. One was very comfortable in the life. One was very uh, exposed to adversity. We read in verse 22, It came to pass the beggar died, was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. If ever a passage has the opportunity to give one ray of hope to a member of Adam's race who has died in an unconverted state, this passage ought to be able to give it. But notice the reply. Abraham said, Son... Remember, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, and now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. There's a gulf that settles the destiny of the righteous and the wicked. And no passing from one state into another. No passing of those who have a righteous character into a sinful state. And no passage from those who have a sinful character into a righteous state. The destiny is settled and there's no mixing and mingling. No second chance set forth in this passage. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 states, let me read it to you, rather than turning there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done, who can finish the rest of the verse, in the body according as he hath done, whether it be good or bad. When the judgment takes place, it will be based upon the deeds done in the body, not in a disembodied state of probation. So that when we appear before Christ, our judgment will be based upon matters which have transpired in this body, the after-probationary theory or after-death probationary view would have to say in this body and out of the body. But that is not allowed to be pushed into this passage of Scripture. One more passage in Matthew chapter 25 and verses 10 through 12, in which this passage, instead of teaching a hope of an open door, to enter into heaven after death, if you die in an unconverted state with a sinful nature, here is a passage which clearly teaches a shut door, not an open door. Matthew chapter 25 and verses 10 through 12. The parable of the, of the foolish virgins. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was what? It was shut. And afterward, 
rather, verse, uh, verse 11, Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And the teaching is that there is going to be a return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that return takes place, there shall be no more chance for an unconverted man to change his character and be accepted by God, or to have his character changed. This teaches a shut-door view, not an open door. But someone might say, ah, but wait a minute, Pastor. Jesus has not yet returned, therefore all the infants which die before his return, there could be still an open door. But listen, what's going to happen then according to that view to the infants when Jesus does return who are living? If your view can't take care of them, then it can't take care of all those infants who are dying now and holding out to them a hope of a probationary period wherein they grow into adult maturity. There were some infants which died in the flood. There are going to be some infants which are going to be changed from mortal to immortals at the second coming of Christ. Now, what's going to happen to them? They would not have time to give their consent. So the view of an after-death probation is not taught in the Scripture. Instead, the Scripture clearly teaches that there is a shut-door policy. Today is the day of salvation. Harden not your hearts. If there's going to be any change of your character, it must be done in this life. And you're either going to have to do it yourself or you're going to have to have somebody else do it for you. Now, are you going to do it by works of righteousness, which you have done? Or are you going to have to cast yourself upon God as helpless as a baby and say, my whole salvation lies in you. I need help. I can't save myself. And, beloved, that's the glory of our gospel. Our gospel's glory lies in the principle that God saves those who cannot save themselves. That includes little infants who can't save themselves. That's the glory of this gospel. And the glory of that gospel is that God saves adults who can't save themselves. Or else we have to water down the glory of the gospel and say that it's half man's work and half God's work. I don't know about you, I've already been brought to see how helpless I am to change my character. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then God says, you go ahead, which are accustomed to do evil, and change your character. I stand before you tonight and say I'm as helpless as an infant to bring about my salvation. 
I need a miraculous work done. I need more than assistance. I need a change of nature, a transformation of nature to be brought into the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he can't even see or enter into the kingdom of God. But the glory of it is, is that when God brings a sinner to that point to see that with all their striving, all their faithfulness, all their good deeds, when they've done it all, the summation of it is filthy rags, then there's nothing more I can do that God says my son can save and do what you cannot do. Then the gospel, that gospel, becomes good news to helpless people. But who is it that refuses that gospel? The Pharisee who likes to go to church and say, I'm thankful I'm not as bad as that fella over there. But if God ever brings you to a place to see that you cannot change your human nature and that he must take the initiative and speak grace to the soul, then, my friend, you'll be appreciative of a God who's able to save little infants in the same way that he saves adults. To God be the glory, then, great things he hath done. Now, we have concluded seven major views of infant salvation, and the only one left is that which is known as the Calvinistic position. If it fails, then there is no biblical answer for the salvation of a sinner. I trust you'll be praying as we spend now the remainder of this series of messages, seeing whether or not God ever does exercise the influence of the Holy Spirit upon infants who do live. And I would encourage some of you in your Bible studies this week to go and begin reading again what he did to John the Baptist in the womb when he was six months old. And see what he did with Jeremiah and Isaiah before that they ever came forth from the womb. And if we can see that there are some instances in the Bible in which God did exercise an influence of his spirit upon infants' natures prior to their consent, then we see we have a biblical case for the belief that all infants which die in infancy are chosen by God, redeemed by the Son, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit prior to their death so that they are ushered into the glorious presence of their loving Heavenly Father's arms. Let's close in prayer.